Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. It seemed to me that, uh, frankly, Ghislaine had almost a sort of bit of, I would say, rather strong influence on Jeffrey. I thought Jeffrey was a little more meek than normal. Maybe he didn't want to tell me, didn't feel I was the right person to tell. In this series, I've been looking into the life of Ghislaine Maxwell, the one-time partner of the paedophile financier Jeffrey Epstein. I started out by looking at her life through the two main men in her life, her father, the media tycoon Robert Maxwell, and her lover, Jeffrey Epstein. But Maxwell died decades ago, and the Epstein name has become so toxic that very few people are willing to talk to me on the record. In the previous episodes, we heard about the complicated life and death of Robert Maxwell and Ghislaine's disturbing relationship with Epstein. But I've still found gaping holes when trying to really understand Epstein's career history and no real explanation as to how he made his millions. For a man whose estate was worth over half a billion dollars when he died, why was there no explanation as to where it came from? Epstein liked to be mysterious and keep people guessing. He himself had claimed to be everything from a spy to a bounty hunter. And in the previous episode, we heard from a former Mossad agent, Ari ben Menashe that Epstein had taken on many of Robert Maxwell's contacts in Israel after he died. And we also heard from his former colleague, Stephen Hoffenberg, who claimed that Epstein worked as a money mover for Douglas Lease and his family, who he described as arms dealers. The Lease family have never spoken to the media before. That is, until now. In this episode, we discover exactly what the Lease family have been doing for the past half a century, and how Epstein was involved. I'm Tom Pattinson, and this is episode four of Ghislaine for Defiance. In 1901, the Cleveland Cap Screw Company was created. It started off making welded bolt screws before moving into engine valves, where it soon became the biggest supplier of valves to the booming automotive industry. During World War II, these valves became key components in aircraft, and it wasn't long before it started creating turbine blades for jet engines too. During the post-war nuclear arms race, the company, which had now been renamed TRW after its various partners and acquisitions, was developing the first ballistic missiles, and by the late 1950s, TRW was making spacecraft, including the 1958 space probe Pioneer 1. It was also responsible for developing the first American intercontinental ballistic missiles, the SM-65 Atlas, which was adapted to take the first astronauts into space as part of the Mercury missions, before it created the Titan missiles, which were adapted for the Gemini space missions. TRW developed and built America's nuclear detection satellite system, as well as the 23 reconnaissance satellites for the Defense Support Program, America's early warning system. The company developed missiles for the US Air Force and rockets and defense satellites for NASA. 
it dominated the US military space race during the second half of the 20th century, until the company was sold in 2002 to the defence contractors Northrop Grumman, which today develops everything from B-21 stealth bombers to rockets for NASA's space launch programme. A well-connected and understated British man was the vice president of that company, and that man was Douglas Lease. Born in 1927, between World War I and World War II, Douglas Lee grew up in Elstow, a small village in Bedfordshire, just north of London. He'd inherited his father Harold's business, Cam Gears, which made rack and pinion steering mechanisms for tractors and earth-moving vehicles. By 1965, it was providing steering systems for 40% of the British motor industry. Derek Ravel started working as an apprentice at Cam Gears in 1968, aged just 16. He remembers Douglas Lee's well. He had a private flat in the Dorchester Hotel in London, so we're talking a very affluent and influential businessman, said Derek. He would know a lot of well-connected people. He had fingers in many pies. Cam Gears was eventually bought by TRW, and Douglas Lee became vice president of the company, where he took on an international advisory role. But Douglas Lease is something of an enigma. There's almost nothing written about him. Nothing. Arguably one of the most influential men in the world of defence, who worked closely with the most senior levels of government, both in the US and around the world. Yet there's no trace of him. According to Stephen Hoffenberg, who employed Jeffrey Epstein between 1987 and 1989, Douglas Lease was an arms dealer and Epstein had spent the first part of the 1980s working for him as his apprentice. For the last few months, I've been trying to track down Douglas Lease's son, Julian Lease, a man I was told both knew Epstein and had knowledge of his father's work. I wanted to find out from him if Epstein was really moving money for his arms-dealing family, as Hoffenberg had told me. But apart from Hoffenberg naming him as an old associate of Epstein there was almost no record of the Lease family or Julian Lease. No social media, no company documents, no court records. This made me question whether Julian Lease had removed his name from the internet or even used an alias in a bid to keep out of the spotlight. Finally, after months of searching, last week I received a call. It was Julian Lease, and he agreed to meet me at a hotel in London's Knightbridge the following morning. He was unhappy. He was unhappy that I'd managed to find him. But he was more unhappy that Hoffenberg had been dragging his late father's name into this. He said he was willing to talk to me, but this would be the one and only time he would speak to the media. Sitting in the roof garden, he sipped a double espresso and puffed on a chubby cigar. We spent three hours talking about the Lease family history and its relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. We spoke several more times over the next week before he finally agreed to talk on the record. I mean, the reason I, I'm, I'm doing this is because there are so many aspersions and, and nonsense that, that has sort of taken over on the internet. And I want to make it very clear on, on a couple of things that, you know, it's affected my family very deeply. And so I want to clear the nonsense that, that has been uh, written. I want to clear that up. Julian talks fondly of his father, 
who died in 2011, and talks me through his father's professional history. He explains the lack of public information on his father is down to the simple fact that he, like Julian himself, was a very private person. Well, my father inherited a company called Cam Gears, and he made a great success of it, and it was all associated with rack and pinion. And then I think in around 1965, 66, he sold it on to a big conglomerate in America called TRW. And he became a vice president of TRW. And um, due to the size of, of TRW, he made some very good connections there. And um, through that, brought um, the way into the 80s now, uh, he got into what I like to describe as the defense business. And he had joint ventures uh, with Westinghouse Defense, as it was known then. Uh, I think it's now known as uh, Northrop Grumman, uh, Boeing, and other businesses such as that. After his work with TRW in the 1960s and 70s, he started a company called LORAD, an offshore company based out of Bermuda. And he continued to work internationally with many of the influential contacts he made whilst at TRW. Can you specify a little bit more about what that means? Because I think a lot of people do think of, when you hear the word defence contracting, they think of arms and things like that. I think, Tom, you're absolutely right, and it's it's very unfortunate. I want to make it very clear this is not dealing in weapons. Defence is quite a broad subject, and I understand why people sometimes gravitate uh, by thinking that you are describing and talking about weapons. But in this case, this was very much to do with defence radar and civil radar systems and civil aircraft. To do that, you have to be very well trusted by the Americans. You have to be whiter than white, he says. Stephen Hoffenberg of Financial Towers calls Douglas Lease Sir Douglas Lease, but he was never knighted. He did win two Queen's Awards for industry, one under Prime Minister Harold Wilson and the other under Margaret Thatcher, but he was never made a knight of the realm. Hoffenberg has also repeatedly called Douglas Lease an arms dealer. So is that something Julian disputes? I, I completely dispute it. Um, I think, unfortunately, to put it diplomatically, he's very confused and he's trying to grasp a lot of attention. And I think it's extremely unfortunate about some of the statements that he's made. And I would ask him to try and be a little bit more factually correct and some of the aspersions that he has been making, not only about, about my family, but others. I ask him about the fact that Douglas Lease's name was mentioned in Parliament in 1996 as the businessman working with British Aerospace as part of the Al Yamama arms to Saudi Arabia deal. I can certainly never remember uh, any mention of, of the Al Yamama deal. Uh, obviously, it was something that, that was very public at, at the time. It was a big, big uh, contract. But I can certainly never, ever recall any of us or my father ever discussing the Al Yamana deal or ever seeing on any level that my father was involved in it. In the last episode, former Mossad agent Ari Ben Menashe explained more about how geopolitical networking and deal-making works. Although certain influential or well-connected characters might come into close contact with intelligence organisations or work with governments, it doesn't necessarily make them a spy or agent of that government. In fact, governments rely heavily on these private contractors and middlemen to smooth deals and ease relationships. Often, as we saw with Robert Maxwell, the financial motivations far outweigh the political ones. And with arms dealing or defence contracting, 
There is a large gulf between illegally running guns or landmines for a rogue dictator versus selling military planes or vehicles for nation states. Douglas Lease was acting as a broker for companies like Marconi and Boeing to help them sell aviation products and equipment, including civil and defence radar, says Julian. Douglas Lease may not have been running arms, but he was incredibly well-connected and a man that an ambitious young Epstein would have been very useful to meet. Julian explains exactly how the Lease family first came into contact with Epstein. It was many, many years ago. I think it was in uh, 1981. Um, There was a very good friend of my father's who was a well-known oil baron at the time down in Texas, and it was his birthday. And my father couldn't make the birthday celebration, so he asked my brother to go down. And during the party, my uh, brother met this lady called Paula, who happened to mention that that she had a boyfriend called Jeffrey Epstein, and uh, they were going to come to London and ask whether, when on their next visit to London, whether they could come and and, and see uh, my brother. And uh, that's how it all transpired. So he then turned up in London, and what was what was he like, or what was your, the impression, first of all, of, of him? Well, I mean, I, I wasn't there at the time. I think I was about 16, so I, I, but as I recall, he uh, he made the phone call, or Paula made the phone call, and they were invited around for a drink. And, and uh, my father at the time was incredibly busy, but uh, at the end of all his meetings, he came down and met Jeffrey. And uh, I think immediately uh, everyone realized that here was uh, a guy who was 27 years old, uh, very, very intelligent, uh, very good fun, very bright, and uh, a friendship uh, started started there. The Leases lived in a large manor house in Wiltshire. Weekends were filled with fishing, hunting and shooting, and Julian was aware that Epstein was not only enjoying a rare glimpse into upper-class English country living, he was also meeting an incredible network of wealthy and influential characters. Julian certainly speaks fondly of those early years with Geoffrey. Aged just 16, Julian enjoyed teaching him how to shoot rabbits, and Geoffrey taught Julian maths, helping him with percentages on a train journey once. His father was very fond of him, and Geoffrey was very fond of his father, he says. What kind of relationship was that, professionally? Well, I think it was personal, too. I think that Jeffrey very much looked at my father as a mentor. I think my father recognized in Jeffrey, as I said um, a minute ago, that uh, he was a very intelligent man, and uh, he was somebody that uh, could potentially give my father some advice. But I think, if I look back at it, it was very much a sort of mentorship, almost. I think uh, my father recognized that Jeffrey had come, let's say, from a less privileged background, and... um, wanted to, in, really, in a way, to try and um, encourage Jeffrey to to get more involved in business and, and to um, experience more in life. Uh, when I say that, I mean to to see the greater things in life, to be able to come down, for example, to our home in, the, in, in, in Wiltshire at the time. And that is how we all, all met. And uh, Jeffrey undoubtedly became a, a very close family friend. Julian remembers how his formal father would often get angry with the casual Geoffrey for small things such as not wearing a jacket or tie, and he'd be sent out to get dressed properly. Whether it was a formal dinner or a business meeting, Epstein would always turn up in a jacket and open shirt. On one occasion, he came to a shoot wearing jeans, and Douglas Lease was furious. 
Lee Senior sent him off to get properly dressed in jacket and tie, one of the only times Julian ever remembers him wearing a tie. On another occasion, Julian remembers after a dinner at the family estate, Epstein just got up and started to beautifully play a harpsichord that was at the house. What was he like when you got to know him as a person? Well, as I said, he, first of all, Jeffrey was always mysterious. Uh, he was, as I said, great fun. He seemed very normal. Um, he is uh, very intelligent, would always ask great questions almost on any subject, whether it would be history, music, science, anything that you could think about. He seemed to be uh, very, very keen on understanding society in the UK. Uh, I actually remember teaching him how to shoot, which was a disaster. Uh, and I think he was deeply intrigued with, with the UK at the time and, and with London. Did he spend a lot of time in the UK? Um, he certainly made numerous visits. I see various articles saying, stating that he lived in the UK. At no time do I ever remember him living in the UK, but it would be true to say that he made numerous visits to England and he seemed to have a relatively good contact base uh, in England. Going back to his contacts there, do you know if he knew um, or had any dealings with, with Robert uh, or indeed his daughter, Ghislaine Maxwell? During those years, I never heard Jeffrey ever talk about the Maxwells. And again, I've these ridiculous aspersions. I've never heard my father ever talk about the Maxwells. I know for a fact he never knew them. Um, so I rather disregard um, a lot of the things that I've read. And I've, the, the first time that I personally ever uh, realized that Jeffrey had anything to do with the Maxwell family was, I think there was an article in the Daily Mail in the early 90s saying that Jeffrey Epstein was now going out with uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. And going back to the work that um, your father was doing at the time, he obviously came into contact with a lot of senior government uh, and and uh, business leaders. Was uh, Jeffrey at some of those meetings? I think Jeffrey was at some of those meetings. Absolutely. I, I and I now when I look back at it, I think that Jeffrey, um, given the personality. That he was, I think he wanted to have and try and get as many contacts as possible. And um, I certainly believe that he perhaps gave my father some advice. Uh, but I think he was doing that for a lot of people too. What what kind of advice do you think he was offering? Well, Jeffrey was very keen on uh, currency uh, contracts. He was very keen on the stock market. He was very keen on financial transactions. and. Um, I think my father very much uh, took some of his advice, but as I said to you before, I absolutely believe that that, that it was uh, mutual and that Jeffrey was trying to get as many connections as possible and trying to learn as much about the world uh, from my father, who throughout his entire career traveled extensively and had uh, many connections internationally. One of those connections was uh, Adnan Khashoggi. Yeah. Do you think, um, was it possibly your father who introduced Epstein to Khashoggi, or, or did they know each other separately? I uh, I have absolutely no idea. I have never never heard my father um, talk about introducing Jeffrey to Khashoggi. I've indeed, and during my conversations with Jeffrey, I've never heard him talk about Khashoggi. 
And actually, even though it's many, many years ago, I just don't think the date lines. Um, I think actually my father met Khashoggi um, after he fell out with Jeffrey. So I really don't understand uh, the, the, the connections that the that, that people are making. And what about um, Jeffrey's own claims of being a bounty hunter, a spy, and these these various mysterious things? Well, there are always many, many rumours about Jeffrey. Uh, Jeffrey, uh, as I've told you before, loved to be mysterious. I did hear him talk about being a bounty hunter. I have to say we probably all took it with uh, a pinch of salt. Other than that, as, as far as, you know, I, again, I've seen in, on, in so many articles that potentially he was a spy, etc., I don't believe any of it. In fact, because of Jeffrey's mystery and because he liked to be mysterious, I think today if he was alive, he'd be rather rather pleased that uh, there's so many press reports uh, with these, these sort of aspersions. But do I believe it? No. Back in the 1980s, Julian remembers two of Epstein's girlfriends well. Paula Hale Fisher was the first girlfriend, the one that Nick Lease met at the Texas party and that led to the first meeting between the Leases and Jeffrey Epstein. There was another girl, after Paula, but it was Eva Anderson who was, by far, the most serious. I remember two, and there's Paula, who I've mentioned before, and then he seemed to have a very, very serious girlfriend, that's, that's Eva, who um, everybody liked. It was a wonderful girl, she was very intelligent, and they seemed to be, at the time, very much in love, and I remember us all thinking that uh, the chances were perhaps quite high that he would marry her. Eva Anderson, now Dr. Eva Anderson-Dubbin, won the Miss Sweden competition in 1980. They were so close that Julian and his family thought they might marry. Anderson remained friends with Epstein until his death, and as we heard in the previous episode, there were even disturbing stories about her and her husband's possible involvement in Epstein's sex trafficking. I asked him about Ghislaine, someone he only met once in 2002 in the suite of a hotel in Japan. Epstein was on a trip to Japan and Hong Kong with Bill Clinton, and Julian was living in Japan at the time. Ghislaine was with him on the trip, and they seemed to be a couple, he said, but he didn't warm to Ghislaine, who he described as seemingly having a lot of power over Jeffrey. I believe that he was on an Asian trip with uh, President Clinton, and he happened to be in Tokyo. I was in Japan at the time. He called me up and I went to visit him. Ghislaine Maxwell was there in his suite. We spent, I guess, a couple of hours together. And it seemed to me that, uh, frankly, Ghislaine had, had almost a sort of, bit of, I would say, rather strong influence on Jeffrey. I thought Jeffrey was a little more meek than normal. And uh, that's the only time I've ever had any contact with Ghislaine Maxwell. He never, ever mentioned uh, her to me at all. Um, never mentioned their plans. Um, nothing. Zero. It's like she came into his life and then left. Maybe he didn't want to tell me, didn't feel I was the right person to tell, but he never, ever discussed her. The relationship between Epstein and Douglas Lease eventually broke down when Douglas felt that Jeffrey was putting in expenses that weren't perhaps quite right. This was between 1984 and 1985. The expenses we're talking about are not an odd taxi or an extra coffee either. Epstein was booking flights on Concorde and rooms in five-star hotels on Lisa's account. Douglas felt that he was stealing from him. Well, that became 
came about in approximately 1984. Unfortunately, there were some expenses that came through that my father and his accountants weren't at all happy with. I remember at the time it deeply upset my father and he decided not to have uh, any more contact with Jeffrey. Um, I know this also upset Jeffrey. Um, I tried to get them together again, um, but it failed. And really since 1984, my father had zero com conversations and zero communication with Jeffrey all the way up to my father's death in 2011. I do remember that it was travel expenses. I believe he booked a number of Concorde tickets. He booked a number of hotel costs, etc., uh, which my father thought at the very least was extremely random and which upset him a great deal as at the time um, when they were friends. Uh, I think my father trusted Jeffrey and he felt very let down. Epstein gravitated towards these wealthy and influential people who he thought would help build his network. And these wealthy men were intrigued by the fact that Epstein was something of a financial genius. First, he ingratiated himself with the influential Donald Barnes at the Dalton School, then the legendary Ace Greenberg at Bear Stearns, Mr. Fixit International Man of Mystery Douglas Lease, media mogul Robert Maxwell, and now here he was with the Wall Street Man of the Hour, Stephen Hoffenberg. Hoffenberg has said it was Douglas Lease who introduced him to Epstein. Was this true? No, absolutely not true. Uh, sadly, again, Hoffenberg seems to be very confused. Uh, what happened was this. By, uh, let me see, the year would have been 1988. By 1988, my father had been had, had no communication with Jeffrey whatsoever for a number of years. Uh, Jeffrey did call me up. I was a very young man at the time and asked whether I would be interested in having an internship with Howard's Financial. And I agreed to do it. So, in fact, it was me, and I want to reiterate this, it was me who introduced uh, Stephen Hoffenberg to my father and not Jeffrey. So you were briefly uh, working at Towers Financial. What were you doing there? Well, when I, when I uh, first went to Towers, uh, he asked me to be on the sales desk, which was uh, like a collection desk almost, uh, where you would ring up and try and get, uh, get clients for collection. And then he asked me to introduce him to, to various people um, to invest in their bonds, which was extremely unfortunate. Actually, one of the, uh, one of the victims uh, was my godparents, my American godparents at the time, uh, which, of course, I find unforgivable. And uh, I guess the rest is history. Um, as we all know, Stephen Hoffenberg ended up in prison, and it was a, a very, very, very bad thing that he was doing. And was your father involved with Towers Financial? He was involved uh, as far as he did make some introductions to Stephen Hoffenberg, um, as we all did, and as many, many people did. Uh, Stephen Hoffenberg, uh, on the face of it, certainly in those days, seemed to be, although um, difficult, certainly a very difficult character, a very volatile character. On the face of it at the time, we were, I guess we were all sucked in because... He had some senior ex-politicians on his board, and uh, he definitely had a uh, veneer of respectability, which was obviously not there. Do you think that uh, Jeffrey could have been involved with Hoffenberg's Ponzi scheme? I really don't know. At the time when I was in New York, I, um, which I found, found unusual at the time, I think I only saw Jeffrey once. Hoffenberg claims his company 
Towers Financial, was entirely clean until Epstein turned up, and that it was Epstein who hatched the plot that would see investors lose $450 million in the biggest Ponzi scheme the world had ever seen up until that point. This accusation saw Epstein sue Hoffenberg for defamation on more than one occasion in recent years. But now Epstein is dead, these accusations are being repeated, and there's no one to sue him. During the six weeks or so that Julian worked with Hoffenberg at Towers, he remembers Hoffenberg complaining that Epstein hadn't returned money he had lent Jeffrey. He also remembers Epstein calling Hoffenberg a total crook. Their relationship was obviously a tempestuous one. Epstein would soon part company with Hoffenberg and take up managing the money of the owner of Victoria's Secrets, Les Wexner. Whilst Epstein had upgraded to manage all of the retail billionaire's assets, Hoffenberg would end up in jail for his part in the Ponzi scheme. Julian did think it remarkable that Epstein became so very wealthy in the 1990s, during or just after he worked with first Hoffenberg, then Wexner. After Jeffrey had left, if you like, the, the employment of, of Towers and then went on to, to Wexner, he seemed to suddenly have made an awful lot of money. Uh, I highly doubt it, however, because uh, logically speaking, Stephen Hoffenberg went to prison for 17 years, which is an awful long time. I would have thought the authorities uh, would have uh, investigated uh, rigorously. And uh, if Hoffenberg had felt that he, he had been wrongly sentenced, um, he had 17 years to think about it and uh, show proof that uh, Jeffrey was involved. One of Hoffenberg's uh, suggestions or claims is that he wasn't prosecuted for both the Ponzi scheme and the earlier um, sexual abuse scandal in 2008 because of uh, Jeffrey's um, connections with with various government and and other organisations. Any feeling of of, of truth in that? I have no idea. Uh, Look, I... Some, I, it is a rather strange story, um, but I have to say that the authorities, it seems to me, looked into this. I don't understand why he got such a good deal at the end of the day. Maybe the, the authorities made a terrible mistake, which uh, I think has probably transpired. But that's all I can say. I have absolutely no idea. When we think about sort of all of the people that Epstein knew and, and the girls, obviously, that were involved. Do you think it, it could have been possible that he was using these girls to either blackmail or compromise or or do something with these these influential characters? Well, I think this. Uh, Jeffrey, which I think he was really rather open about, frankly. I mean, his obsessions in life were, frankly, sex, money, and he had a deep fascination with, with science. Uh, he obviously had become was becoming very very wicked indeed. Do I believe that he was using his girls as blackmail against people? No. For someone who's known Jeffrey, albeit you know many years went past before you know, uh, I not and I didn't see him etc. Jeffrey from day one always wanted to be mysterious. Uh, he always, always wanted to build a whole wall of mystery around him, whether that's because he was hiding something or whether it's because he wanted people to believe that he was something that he wasn't. I have no idea. So now he's dead, unfortunately. 
this whole mysterious aura that he had is wonderful ammunition for people to, to talk, talk and say a lot of things. During the 1990s, Julian and Epstein barely saw each other. They would stay in touch by phone for birthdays and Christmas, but it wasn't until 1999 Julian would see him again, when Julian was in New York for business. I hadn't seen him for many, many years, but I happened to be in New York, I think it was in 99, and I gave him a call, I said I was in New York, and uh, he asked me to come along for tea, which I did. What was that like? Well, it was slightly bizarre, because first of all, I had no idea that he'd managed to get himself such an enormous house. So I remember knocking on the door, this colossal, um, on this colossal front door, a butler answered, and um, he said, Mr. Epstein will be here in a few minutes. And Jeffrey came down this very big stairway, this marble stairway, and I remember him saying to me, quote, my boy, I told you I would, I, I would make it uh, very big. And I said to him, I just can't believe this. And uh, we went upstairs and we talked about the intervening years and we talked about him a little bit. And then he said, let's go downstairs and have some tea. Jeffrey, first of all, he, never, he, he didn't drink and he didn't smoke, but for some extraordinary reason, he had an obsession about tea. And uh, we, we went down and there were three or four girls there. And they, I have to tell you, they all seemed remarkably happy. They were all certainly over the age of 21. And uh, we had uh, some sandwiches and, and, and tea. And, uh, and I remember teasing him and saying, well, this is just like an English tea. And he said, I think you would approve. So when he was there, he was, he was surrounded by young women. Were there regular girlfriends or, or was it just different people? I have people? no idea. He, 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 I have no idea. He introduced me um, uh, as... Uh, he introduced me to them and, and said they were his friends. Julian went to that house three times between 1999 and 2013. Each time, tea was served, and a small harem of girls were in attendance. On the very last occasion I saw Jeffrey was in, uh, let me think, in 20, I think it was 2013. There was one girl there, I can't remember her name, he seemed to be very fond of her. Um, she was certainly again over 21, I want to make that very, very clear. And uh, he seemed to... Um, be very keen on her and, they, and, and happy. Um, but at the same time, I was sort of picking up this idea on the phone, on the phone calls I was having with him, that he was becoming increasingly lonely. So you, you spoke to him uh, after his first time in prison and you said there was yes. perhaps a change? There was a change. I think he found the experience incredibly humbling. He certainly was never boastful about the deal that, per se, he had. Uh, he seemed to always, in the later years, want to talk about the fact that he wished he'd got married or he wished he'd had children. He seemed to always want to talk about the earlier years. He always wanted to talk about, for example, my family. He wanted to talk about very neutral stuff. It's as though he'd come, come into a very dark place and, and didn't know how to get out of it. And of course, we now know that he was in a very dark place and was doing incredibly wicked things. Do you think a lot of uh, his friends left him or, or, or stuck by him? Well, it's in, it, it's, that's a very interesting question. I, I remember him saying to me once that uh, after he came out of prison that he was amazed by the people that he thought would stick by him did not. 
and the ones he thought would never speak to him again kept in contact. And, and, and I think that uh, when I look back at it now, he was desperate to try and get some sort of respectability back, uh, which, he, which, which obviously I think he failed in. And uh, he ended up being a, a, a dark, very lonely man. The Clintons, who he'd been friendly with before then, and even his beloved Ghislaine, apparently were among those to drop him. Whilst others, including his personal assistant, Leslie Groff, remained close. The last time Julian communicated with Epstein was on the 4th of July last year. I last communicated him, with him on the 4th of July last year. He responded by asking where I, where I was. I replied. I sent back an email and saying, how are you? And I never got a response. And that was my last communication with Jeffrey. Two days later, Epstein would be arrested. And just over a month later, on the 10th of August... Epstein would be found dead in his cell. Julian believes his death was suicide. Being trapped in a cell, he says, would have been too horrific for him. I absolutely believe it was suicide. I think that he realised what was coming to him and that he couldn't face it. I think it's an enormous tragedy that he didn't get to court. I actually have to say that I think it's a shame that he didn't get bail for the simple reason that I believe if he had got bail, he would not have committed suicide in which case all his victims would have had their time in court. The whole thing is steeped in terrible wickedness. Um, I had no idea, obviously, that that's what he was doing. Um, I look back at it now and I realize it was a mistake perhaps to have kept in contact with him when he first went to prison. But I have to honestly tell you that given the length of his sentence, which we now all agree was very, very short, and given it was American justice, I thought, well, perhaps this is not as serious as it seems. Um, but I think that the, the story uh, and what has transpired is deeply, deeply tragic for everyone. And uh, my heart goes out to all the girls. And obviously he was living a very dark, secret life. Julian Lees knew Epstein for nearly 40 years. He was probably his longest-serving friend, and he saw him turn from an ambitious young go-getter, enjoying normal, happy relationships, into a lonely man surrounding himself with increasingly younger women. Julian's father may not have been an arms dealer, as some have accused, but he did work for some of the biggest defence companies on earth before going on to broker deals for major defence contractors around the world. Because of his work, he moved in interesting circles and became friends with known arms dealers such as Khashoggi. But Wafiq Saeed, the main broker of the British-Saudi arms deal, Al-Yamama, that Hoffenberg claims Lees was involved with, told me he doesn't know the Lees name. I also spoke to several other people who Hoffenberg had mentioned to me, including people he claimed were former investors or even board members at Towers. Some, who were senior government officials at the time, all told me that Hoffenberg was not a reliable witness. Julian's own past has been wonderfully interesting, ranging from working in aviation in Myanmar to investing in Indonesia to property development in Detroit. He now invests in environmental sustainability projects and advises a biotech firm. His brother Nick was also embroiled in a scandal in the late 1990s when British home retailer Littlewoods signed a deal with Lorad the Bermuda-based Lease family company 
to buy products directly from Southeast Asia. The aim was to reduce costs by cutting out many of the middlemen between factory and wholesaler. But a falling out between the Littlewoods owners and the Lee's family saw Nick accused of taking bribes and a court case took place in Singapore. The judges immediately threw out the case and the Lee's family took the Littlewoods owners to court where a settlement was later made. Douglas Lease also owned a company called Rexall Distribution, based in the UK, which had a distribution partnership with a Chinese company called Norinco. Although the Chinese company supplied automotive parts to Rexall, it also manufactured arms, further stoking rumours. As well as these uncomfortable links with this Chinese arms company, there are other links with individuals, companies and nation-states that show that Lorad, or the Lease family business, may have continued operating in defence until the end of the 1990s. They're certainly a well-connected family in the world of defence, brokering all kinds of deals for all kinds of people. Due to the mysterious nature of some of these deals, and some of the high-profile characters and companies involved, it's clear why some would have suggested that the Lease family are, or at least were, arms dealers. Working with defence contractors will certainly attract those claims. But Lorad is now gone, as is the family business, and the patriarch Douglas. While working on this story, I've managed to build a picture of Epstein. He had an ability to charm his way into meeting some of the most influential and powerful people in the world. And once he met them, he would gain their trust, so much so that some of these hugely powerful people allowed him to manage their finances. Perhaps some of these people had finances they wanted to hide, something Ghislaine's father, Robert Maxwell, also had a history of. Whether it was moving money or perhaps just reducing a tax bill, all of these people ending up parting with Epstein on bad terms. He was fired from Dalton School and then from Bear Stearns. And he stole from Lease, Hoffenberg and Wexner. Was he just a con man? A chancer? Epstein had nearly four decades worth of contacts with people in the highest level of politics, finance and intelligence, which may well have protected him from some of the criminal prosecutions he faced, both for his financial dealings and the sexual abuse he carried out. But were the sexual crimes he committed entirely separate from the financial crimes? Was it that this ever-so-powerful man needed to dominate young girls for his sexual gratification? Or was it that they were linked? Perhaps the teenage girls that he would provide for sex to his clients was the carrot, and then the compromat he obtained of them was the stick. How much did he use women to get to these powerful men? Did he use girls as a social lubricant that opened the doors of the offices of the most prestigious bankers, politicians and royals? After all, it was through Ace Greenberg's daughter that he got into Bear Stearns, and it was a girlfriend who introduced him to the leases. Despite reaching these high-profile people in politics and business, Epstein has set his sights higher. Fond of the British lifestyle, his next step on the social ladder would be royalty, and it would be Ghislaine Maxwell who would introduce him to this circle, where he became good friends with the Queen's son, Prince Andrew. In the next episode of Ghislaine, 
It is clear to me that Prince Andrew should sit in person for an interview with the FBI and with prosecutors. And I think that Prince Andrew needs to do this for the victims, but he's not yet done it. And I think the big question that is looming is, why not? This show was written and narrated by myself, Tom Pattinson. Additional production and sound design was by Danny Knowles, and Peter McCormack was the executive producer. I'd like to thank Julian Lees for his time, and the other people I spoke to in the research of this show who would like to remain anonymous. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest place to buy and sell Bitcoin, available at kraken.com, or you can download the app from the Apple or Google App Stores. I'm Tom Pattinson. Head over to defiance.news, where you can download previous shows and watch our films.